Amen. Please be seated. Hi there, everyone. Uh, please turn your Bibles to, we're reading from Exodus 6, 2 to 13, and then from 6, 26 through to 7, 7. So to repeat that, that's 6, 2 to 13, and then 6, 26 to 7, 7. Let me remind you, this is the word of God. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name is the Lord. I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians have in, are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. We're now jumping forward through to 26. It was this Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. This same Moses and Aaron now, when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you. And your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. I don't know if you've um, read uh, any of Malcolm Gladwell's books. I read Outliers a few years ago. I think it came out in 2011. Um, it's a bit dated, but it's the subtitle, which I don't think you can see... 
oh, you can see it, is The Story of Success. And it's a book that seeks to answer the question, what makes some people so successful? And it's a great read, and if you haven't read it, I recommend it. The second chapter is called The 10,000 Hours Theory, which has now kind of made its way, I've noticed, into, into our culture. And in that chapter, he argues that to become proficient in your field, whether your field is academics, or whether it's music, or sport, or art, or computers, raw talent is not enough. Those who have scaled the heights, those who have become the top 1%, for example, the Olympians, in addition to raw talent, they've put at least 10,000 hours of work in, which is an amazing and a daunting thought. Success in any area of life is a gift from God. But like all gifts from God, it can also be used for evil. Success can make us arrogant. Forgive me for referencing a second book um, so early on in my sermon, but if you haven't read Tim Keller's book called Counterfeit Gods, I would recommend that you get it today on Kindle and read it. I think it's one of the most important books that's been written in the last 10 years. Um, Listen to this quote. He says, More than other idols... Personal success and achievement lead to a sense that we ourselves are God, that our security and our value rest in our own wisdom, in our own strength, in our own performance. To be the very best at what you do, to be at the top of the heap, means that there is no one like you. You are supreme. End quote. I think it's almost certainly would have been the case for Pharaoh. Um, In his society, in his time, he was considered by his subjects and by himself, by the way, to be a demigod. He would have been worshipped. He was powerful. He was educated. He was rich. He was confident. He resided over the superpower of the day. His word was rule. He was at the top of his game. And by contrast to Pharaoh, we have Moses. Pharaoh and his success, Moses and his failure. And so will you consider with me this morning, first of all, Moses' failure and God's promise. Um, There are three rather embarrassing mentions of Moses' failure that span, that really frame this passage in chapter 6. Uh, The first is chapter 5. We looked at it last week. Let me just read it to you. Why, Lord, have you done evil to this people, Moses said. Do you remember? If you were here last week. Moses, it's quite astonishing, actually. Moses accuses God of having done evil to the Israelites. That's failure number one. Failure number two is chapter 6 and verse 12 where Moses says to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Since I speak with faltering lips. It literally says in the Hebrew, since I speak with uncircumcised lips. And then uh, the third failure comes at the end of chapter 6 and verse 30. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with uncircumcised lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? He repeats it again. Moses' audience with Pharaoh, remember, has yielded nothing but bad fruit. Instead of rescue for God's people who are slaves, Pharaoh did what? He doubled the workload. And he removed resources from them, even. 
making it even worse than before. Um, Moses is disappointed with God. God's plan to rescue looks like it's not going very well. Even though he had those signs and wonders to show off, do you remember? The staff turning into a snake, his hand becoming leprous, and water turning into blood. Pharaoh is unimpressed and responds by hardening his heart and making life harder for the Israelites. Uh, If you have a Bible in front of you, you can look down to chapter 7 and verse 13. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. And so Moses has failed. Pharaoh has succeeded. Moses is discouraged, downhearted, and disappointed with God. And so God responds in two ways in this passage to Moses' failure. First of all, he reminds Moses of his faithfulness to his promise. And secondly, he tells Moses to pull himself together and put his head down and go forward. That's good common sense, that, isn't it? We all need that in our lives from time to time. First of all, God's faithfulness. And so in verses verses 2 to 11 of our reading this morning, chapter 6, God speaks. And if you've listened carefully to David reading it for us, you might have noticed some marriage language creeping in. Four times, verse 2, verse 6, verse 7, and verse 8, God gives Moses his name again, I am the Lord. And you remember, whenever we come across the word Lord in the Old Testament in small caps, it actually is the word Yahweh. I am Yahweh. That was the name that he got at the burning bush in chapter 3. Did, do you think that it's mentioned that God tells his name four times in the passage because Moses forgot it? I don't think that's the reason. I've been thinking about why is it that God has to keep saying to Moses, I am Yahweh, I am Yahweh, I am Yahweh. And then I thought about marriage. You know, in the marriage ceremony, we say our names to each other, don't we? I grant, take you, Lilibet, to be my wedded wife, to heaven to hold from this day forward for better, for worse. Why do we say our names? It's not that we've forgotten who we're about to marry, I don't think. It's because it is a solemn occasion. It is solemn language. It's oath language. It's the language of promise before making a pronouncement of commitment. I grant. And so God is using his name because he is talking about marriage. He's talking about commitment. He's talking about oath-taking. Very interesting that the Lord says, um, with up, with my hand held, uh, with uplifted hand in verse 8, I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand. Isn't that exactly what happens in a court of law? One hand on the Bible, one hand uplifted. I swear, and we swear by God, don't we? Who does God swear by? By Himself. There is no higher authority than God. Nothing is so reliable as God's oath or promise. And so God wants Moses to understand that he is the God of commitment and solemn oath. I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I am the Lord. Just like the faithfulness of a husband or a wife is expected within Christian marriage, so God is saying that he is a faithful husband. 
And so God takes Moses back over 400 years to the promises that were made to Abraham. I am faithful to those promises. They still hold. I have not forgotten. I am the God of oath and commitment. I am Yahweh. Solemn. I guess this is the equivalent, really, of um, a couple that I know of who were married, Christian couple, and uh, they were married as Christians, and by day two or three of the honeymoon, they realized that Christian marriage is not about the avoidance of conflict. I don't know if any of you discovered that. Maybe it was earlier on in the honeymoon. But by about day three on the honeymoon, they realized actually conflict is part of life here. And then they had to work out that Christian marriage is not about the avoidance, but about the management of conflict. That is, you've got to learn how to fight like Christians in marriage. And so there was lots of insecurity, especially with the wife, due to childhood traumas. She was insecure every time there was conflict in the marriage. It would be, and the husband, I said to the husband, why don't you remind her of your marriage vows every time she's insecure after some scratchiness in the marriage? Remind her, I'm not going anywhere. I said, for better or for worse, I'm here. And, and I love you, and I'm committed to you. I don't like you very much at the moment, but I love you, and I'm committed, and I'm not going anywhere. It's a bit like taking the insecure wife or the insecure husband back to the marriage certificate and saying, can you see, look at my signature there. I promised something to you, and I'm keeping that promise. If only it was that easy, hey, husbands, to do that. Because our wives do require more than that. Not less than that, but they do require more than that. Where's the warmth and where's the romance, for goodness sake? You can't just say, look at the marriage certificate and I, I'll let you know if ever I change my mind from that day. You know, that's a bit cold. It lacks the intimacy and the warmth of a candle at dinner to show me that you love me. So I don't want you to miss something in addition to the solemnity of what God is saying, as though he is making marriage vows. I want you to notice the intimacy of what God is saying. And the key verses here are verse 6 and 7. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Listen to this intimacy. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will be your God and you will be my people. Can you, can you hear the warmth in that? Almost the romance in that. It's lovely, isn't it? It's so tender and intimate. It's a beautiful picture of tenderness and love. It's a picture of protection and security and being swept off your feet as he's going to take them from being slaves to being a bride. I will be your God and you will be my people. And what God is saying to Moses here is something that we need to hear and believe. God doesn't only swear by his name with uplifted hand. That's, we need that. That's the basis of all marriage, is commitment and promise-keeping. But also there is this tenderness of relationship. You will come and be my bride, and I will be your husband. 
And so God is not only going to rescue the Israelites from something, from slavery. He's also rescuing Israel for something. And that is for personal and intimate relationship with himself. When God affects a rescue, it's always double-barreled. He rescues us from something and he rescues us for something. And that's what the Israelites need to learn. Many people misunderstand this about God, perhaps even here today. Often we want one without the other. We want God to deliver us from a particular situation, something unpleasant, maybe the consequences of some act of sin or stupidity. But we're not actually interested in God. We're only interested in what he can deliver us from. But that's not enough. That's not what God is doing in the world. God doesn't only want to get you out of a sticky situation. He wants to draw you into personal and intimate relationship with himself. I will be your God and you will be my people. He wants to deliver us from a situation, but he also wants to know us and he wants us to know him. He wants marriage. That's what he wants. He wants intimacy. I wonder if God is your God like that. Or maybe it is that you just, you're kind of looking to God to be delivered from something, but you're not too interested in the second half of that equation. The greatest um, and the most powerful person in the entire universe wants to be married to you. He wants to offer you faithful, solemn, and intimate friendship and relationship. Is that not an extraordinary thought, if it is true? And you can actually leave here today, if you're not already, in personal and intimate relationship with the living God who swears by himself to be faithful. I said earlier that God responds to Moses' failure really in two ways. The first is that he reminds Moses of his faithfulness and his desire for relationship. But the second is, is that he tells Moses to get up, put his head down, and go and do what I told you to do. Stop trying to wrang wangle your way out of it. And so in chapter 6 and verse 11, um, the Lord said to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. Very kind of God. Moses, in the flow of time, I have sovereignly and graciously appointed you in your 80s, Nochal. He's 80. Um, I wonder if I should do this. How many people are there here who are in their 80s? Auntie Die. Okay, two, we, have, we have one or two or three ancient ones with us this morning. How wonderful. Can you imagine in your 80s, God saying, I've got a whole ministry for you. Don't start thinking about retirement. You need to get going. Put your head down and walk to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. I've got a job so important that you'll be remembered for all of time, even though you've been a failure up until this point. And then, did you notice that David, and I'm sure you were thinking this was a merciful thing that we did this morning, did you notice that he skipped from verse 14 to 25 out of the reading? Because it's one of those mind-numbing genealogies in the Old Testament that when it gets read, you lose the will to live. 
And we get what we get here is we get the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. And while we didn't read it for the sake of time, and because I, I wasn't sure David could pronounce all the names in it, um, it is important nevertheless for us to ask why is it here? Why do we get this genealogy? And do you know we're actually told explicitly, verse 26, verse 26 of chapter 6, it was this Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring the Israelites out of Egypt. That is, the, the author wants to include their pedigree for us to make sure that we're not getting confused with any other Moses or Aaron. That's the one reason. It's for identity. Let me just tell you, let me just stop here and let me tell you the pedigree of these two guys in their 80s who are going to uh, redeem Israel. But there is a second reason, I think, for the genealogy here. It, it underscores for us just how insignificant Moses is. For he's not born of greatness or with a silver spoon in his mouth. He's not special at all. He doesn't come from a famous or an influential family. He's not a descendant of Jacob's first son, Reuben. Verse 14. He comes from Jacob's third son, Levi. And he doesn't come from Levi's firstborn son. He doesn't even, he himself is not even the firstborn son in his own nuclear family. He really is insignificant. In the ancient world, your, your placement in the birth order was held to be of much more significance than it is in our culture today. The point is, is that Moses is insignificant. We would never have noticed him. We would never have chosen him to do something as important as lead God's people out of Egypt. And it's as though the, the genealogy is here, I think it's as though God is saying, Moses, in spite of your insignificance, in spite of your failure, um, in spite of your age, I'm going to use you for a great thing. Isn't that wonderful how God does? God's ways are not our ways, are they? We're impressed by success, by money, by education, by breeding, by pedigree, but not God. There is nothing in the story of the Exodus to make you think that anything happened as a result of Moses and his skills or his influence or his learning. It's all God who can use anybody, even a donkey in the book of Numbers can be used by God. And so can you see, friends, there is no doubt as to who the hero is in the book of Exodus. Is it Moses? No. Is it Aaron? No. It is God who chooses the insignificant and the foolish things of this world to shame the wise and the successful, like Pharaoh. If anything is going to happen, it's going to have to happen by the initiative of the Lord, which leads me to my second and my final point. Moses' weakness and God's power. Moses' weakness and God's power. One of the things that we're learning through the book of Exodus is that God really does rule over every power in the world. This is not conventional wisdom. We live in a culture where God is really a personal opinion at best, and best kept to ourselves. And I guess we can be lulled, can't we, into thinking that God is not in control if he exists at all, I was just struck, just reading the paper this weekend. I don't recommend it. 
It is so discouraging. I mean, let's be honest. It just feels like we are living in the midst of chaos that's just getting going from bad to worse. You might be tempted to think that God is not in control. And you know, the world thinks that he isn't in control and that if he does exist at all, then he's asleep or he's unwilling or he's unaware or he's disinterested. And after reading the paper this weekend, I, felt I, f- I was tempted to feel like that. It's not a new way of thinking. It really does suit the human race to deny that God is the rightful ruler of the universe because then I can live the way I want to live without reference to God or acknowledgement of his claim on my life. And this is the default setting of the human heart. Do you remember back in chapter 5 and verse 2 last week, we saw Pharaoh say, Who is the Lord that I should obey? I don't know who the Lord is. Don't tell me to obey somebody that I don't know or care about. See, the rule of God is hidden from those without faith in him. And because of his contempt for the God of Israel, Pharaoh had contempt for God's people and treated them abominably. But chapter 7 is coming. For in chapter 7, God will unleash the plagues. And he will demonstrate to the whole world that he is not only the God of Israel, but he is the God of Egypt, and he is the God of the universe. God of the nation of the weak and oppressed slaves is also the God of the world. Don't be fooled. Quite suddenly, actually, it's quite stunning how those plagues suddenly hit. We'll look at it next week. Such that the news of those plagues will carry to the ends of the earth. Even for people who don't believe in God, it'll be unmistakable through the plagues that God is the great ruler of the world. And so the book of Exodus will remove the veil to reveal for us God's mighty, unopposed, and inevitable rule over the world. Do you believe that about God? I needed to be reminded of that after reading the papers this weekend. I needed to be reminded of the fact that God rules South Africa today. Nothing has taken him by surprise. He knows everything that's going on behind closed doors and in dark corners. Nothing escapes his gaze. And nothing escapes his rule. In verse uh, chapter 6 and verse 28, near the end of the chapter, he says... Verse 30, sorry, Moses said to the Lord, I speak with faltering lips. I speak with uh, uncircumcised lips in the Hebrew. That is, my speech is weak. It's unconvincing. It's without effect. I've tried and, and, and it's had no effect whatsoever. And God replies that at a time when no earthly power could challenge Pharaoh, I wonder if that's how people in the Ukraine feel today. It seems that no earthly power can change Putin. No earthly power could challenge Pharaoh. God says the most extraordinary thing to Moses in chapter 7 and verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. 
and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. Moses will have godlike authority over Pharaoh. And look at how Moses and Aaron eventually respond to God in verse 6. Chapter 7, verse 6. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80, Aaron was 83. They respond how? In obedience. And do you know that at this point, Moses, who has really been a failure up to this point, for the first time, succeeds. For success is obedience to God. It's not breeding, it's not gifting, it's not wealth, it's not status, it's not cleverness, it's not even super spirituality. Success in God's economy, you don't need to be beautiful or clever or talented. You need to obey. Now, what is it that we are asked to obey today? God isn't calling us to go to Pharaoh or to Putin. But God is very clear in the New Testament as to what it is that we are to obey. Do you remember these words? Repent and believe the gospel, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Dear friends, that is our word from the Lord. If you want to be successful, truly successful, even if not in the eyes of the world, you need to obey the gospel. That is, we need to stop behaving as though we are the kings of our lives, for God's real king has turned up, Jesus. We need to get off the throne of our lives. We need to do it quickly. We need to do it today. We need to do it humbly and apologetically as we invite him onto his rightful place in our lives. The New Testament calls us to be obedient to the gospel. It is easy to rejoice in success. Pharaoh, who is rich and educated and successful and powerful, a demigod in his own generation, he will be shown in a few chapters' time to be the failure that he is. He thought he was successful. But God is going to reverse his fortunes. Moses thought that he was a failure. But God is the great reverser of fortunes. And what he requires from us is obedience. God's power and rule are shown as he puts his hand on Pharaoh's heart. Verse 3 of chapter 7, I will harden him. God's power and rule are shown as he puts his hand on Pharaoh's kingdom. Verses 4 and 5. I will act with mighty acts of judgment, and then he will let my people go. See, God's word can lead to the hardening of hearts. God's word can lead to the softening of hearts. How will you respond to God this morning? 
Look at this verse from the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And look at later on in the chapter, verses 12 and 13 of Hebrews chapter 3 as I close. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I wonder if God is saying something to you this morning. It might be that you need to soften your heart, perhaps for the first time. You need to ask God to marry you, to draw you into that intimate relationship, to, to cause you to obey the gospel, which is what draws you into that relationship, to repent of your independence and your uh, ignoring of God in your life, and to ask him to rule you. For remember, he's not just wanting to save you from your sins, but he wants to save you for himself so that you will live his way and be his person. And now will you bow with me as we pray.